Welcome to the Empirical Cycling Podcast. I'm your host, Coley Moore. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And if you're new here, please consider subscribing if you enjoy the podcast. And uh, I assume a lot of you are returning listeners. So if you have already subscribed and you have shared the podcast, that's really the best thing you can do for supporting the podcast. You can also give us a nice iTunes rating or wherever you listen to the podcasts. Uh, we are also uh, ad-free. And so if you'd like to donate, please go to empiricalcycling.com slash donate and you can send us a couple bucks. We really appreciate all the donations that we've got from everybody recently. Um, Thank you so much. It really keeps the ship afloat. And we are a coaching company. So if you'd like to reach out for coaching or even a consultation, our time is your time. Uh, You can ask any questions you want, power file reviews, whatever. Or if you are an amateur or professional athlete, we are always taking on clients. So please uh, send me an email at empiricalcycling at gmail.com with any questions at all about any of that. And if you'd like to ask a question of our future guests, uh, I am taking those questions on my Instagram, Empirical Cycling, of course, and uh, just keep an eye out up in the stories. Uh, I think my color coding is like, I'll use the purple background for listener questions for podcasts and the uh, weekend AMAs up there I post every Saturday is going to be an orange background. So if you'd like to uh, ask me a question on Instagram, please hit over there. I will give you the short answer, but we're here for the podcast and uh, this is the long answer. So um So thanks, everybody, for tuning in. And um, as soon as I saw that Allison Jackson won Roubaix, I was super excited, Uh, not only because I'm a huge fan of Allison Jackson, but also because uh, I'm friends with her coach, Adam Pulford. And Adam is a CTS coach. Uh, He's uh, been there for a long time, and I've known him for quite some time. We've also got a lot of similar connections in the coaching and cycling industry, and he's also a really, really good dude. And, And I... Like I say in the podcast, I'm always looking for an excuse to invite him on because I just like talking to him so much. And um, so I said, Adam, why don't you come on? And also the the big excuse to come on was because he wrote a great article looking at the power file behind Alison Jackson's uh, Perry Roubaix Femme win. And so I wanted to talk to him about that and also the training behind it. And I had a, a couple, uh, I had a couple questions uh, for him on how he does this and his approach and his philosophy, uh, and also ver- very generally on training as well. And uh, we also take your listener questions at the end. So um, thank you all for the really great questions. And uh, I hope everybody enjoys the interview. Every time I talk to you, there's a lot I learn. Um, and obviously, it's really cool to know somebody who has coached a Perry Roubaix winner. Hmm. Um, yeah, thanks. So uh, I'm glad you've got the smile chiseled off your face finally. I'm sure it lasts about two weeks. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, my, my Actually, my first question is, when people congratulate you for your client's victories, does, yeah. is that a little weird? Because it's like, I'm not the one out there doing the work. I didn't do that race. I don't. Yeah. I didn't read the race that day. I might have made a different call. Yeah, it's it's super strange. Um, and as you know, whether it's like a coaching colleague or somebody you're riding with, and they say that, without you just have to receive it, right? Because it's cool, it's positive. It's like, thanks. But what goes into it really is like I did essentially nothing on. Well, I did nothing on the day except cheer from my computer, right? <laughs> yeah. And the way Alice and Jackson rode that race, that was all her. Like, and she's been envisioning this for over a year. This has been her A list goal and all this kind of stuff. And any contribution I had, which is, you know, just a spoke in the wheel of all these things, is just like doing doing good training and helping her kind of stay in bounds to get that training done leading up to it, keeping yeah. her happy, talking to her. 
and so I think that that role as a coach is it's it's special because you're a part of someone someone's life who does some pretty cool stuff on a bike, but uh, that's it. I mean, they're they're out doing the actual work. Yeah, well, and I I I think that that's uh, it's good you note that because being that part of somebody's life, like we're in control of a very large amount of somebody's waking hours or well, quote unquote control. Like we are, yeah. we can't make them do something, but if they're, yeah. yeah, we have a heavy influence on, it, especially if somebody's on the bike, you know, 20, 30 hours a week and, you know, we're trying to get them to, you know, rest well and eat well and all that other stuff. It, you know, I, I can't imagine cause I haven't been coached for so long. I, I, I would imagine if I, if I had, were a full-time athlete and I had a coach like that, like they would be in my head most of my waking hours to some degree. Yeah. Yeah. Um, exactly. And I think, you know, I've, I've mentioned this coach on this podcast before, but Dean, um, Dean Golich, who he was a, I mean, was a very strong mentor in my life, taught me a lot of stuff about coaching and I'm still friends and work with some of the athletes that Dean used to coach. In fact, Allison Jackson used to uh, work with Dean. Mm. And when you're out at races and, and all this, in I'll say something and people will be like, sounds like Dean or Dean was in my head when I was time trialing and he said this. And I think when you have influential people in your life, yeah, you, it's, it's part of the mantra. It's part of the thing because you have so much communication going on, uh, to influence and kind of like mold an athlete. Um, and you're changing habits for the better and all this kind of stuff. And yeah, hopefully you get some self-talk going on <laughs> that they can remember, right. To just cue them into, into flowy moments. Yeah. I mean, and I, I've, I've been told this by people who listen to the podcast a lot, which is that, um, you know, I like, they'll be like, you were in my head when I was doing X, Y, Z. And hopefully at the feedback I've gotten is, has never been, wow, this led me wrong. It's, it's, this led me to a better training decision. Like I decided to go home. I decided to eat something. I decided to ride easier. And, you know, we're, we're, we're looking for, for, we want good vibes most of the time and we want hard work some of the time, you know? Yeah. A hundred percent. And I think like, so to all this point, I think you've actually said something on your podcast, which I think I've been stealing a lot lately, which in <laughs> somebody like grilled you on socials about it, but you said about zone two, you're something about zone two and you're like zone two, you build up aerobically to the point where zone two is what you need to be doing during the hard times or d like during the harder intervals. So like Zone two is the stuff you do in between the harder intervals to keep going. It's not recovery. It's not, and I'm butchering that concept right now, but you were yeah, talking. It, it actually doesn't sound familiar. <laughs> <laughs> we'll go back into the archives. Okay. The reason I bring it up is like take a 90 minute endurance ride. Say once you got a rider that's over hundred CTL or something like that, it's not moving the needle forward. It's not pure recovery, but it's aerobic maintenance. And mm -hmm. so I don't know. I guess I heard you really wrong, or maybe if it was a Coley doppelganger, but I've just been saying <laughs> this. So it's endurance. It's the stuff you need to be doing in between all the other stuff. Well, that that sounds, fitness. yeah, that sounds more familiar. I mean, I've, yeah. I think I've always called it endurance training because the, the zone thing has, it, it steers people wrong in a lot of ways because I, I, um, you know, cause Andy's, Andy's training zones is influential and as beneficial to a lot of people as they've been. Um, you know, they're a tool and they're a model and, you know, all models are wrong and some are useful. And so when we're thinking about that kind of thing, it's like, oh, well, I want you riding at 70% of your FTP today. And if somebody's top of their endurance range is like 60%, 
I don't want them riding 70%. Um, and so, yeah, so it's like the, but you know, as you mentioned, it's great for endurance. And actually that's one of the things I want to talk to you about, um, with, uh, coaching, uh, you know, top level athletes or just athletes in general, cause it's kind of the same between amateur athletes and, and pros. So, um, cause Okay. So well, why don't we just start getting into this right now? Cause I asked you on, because I love the article that you wrote. Um, and the, the, you started off with a banger, which was the Paraguay power file looked ordinary. Mm-hmm. And so why don't you describe what you mean by ordinary? Cause obviously it's a, it's an extraordinary race, but how, how is the power up with ordinary? Yeah. So the power file itself was not extraordinary in the way that I think readers would want to see massive power outputs, peak powers relative to the athletes, uh, historic performances, and just some like massive, like say power to weight ratios or something like that moments that the numbers would elicit emotion. Yeah. It, it was, it just wasn't there. It was very squiggly for about four hours and had a inconsequential mini sprint toward the end that like was a ramp up to a sprint. Um, and so what I mean by that is like boring. There was no moment. There was no, as I'm just scanning, I'm just like, okay, it's just very squiggly, nothing crazy going on. So you couldn't, if you didn't watch the race, if you didn't know nothing else, you'd see it on there and be like, Oh, a bike race today. Hmm." (laughs) That's it. Well, and I think that's, Um, that's one of the things that I've tried to impart on a lot of people is not how much power can you do leading to a good result? It's how little. And I, and I usually counsel people that racing is at some level stops being about just, and this is one of the other things you mentioned in the article, um, that I thought was great. It's it pretty, well, these aren't your words, but these are mine, but same idea where it stops being about just having the fitness to do it. And it's more about where do you spend your energy? How do you make this race happen? Because a lot of the times when I'm coaching people and they start getting more fit and suddenly a race is like well below their ceiling of what they could do, suddenly it's it's like you're no longer just hanging on. Uh, I think you said in the article it was something like you're no longer surviving, now you're racing. And it's like learning to race again, yeah, all over again. Full stop. And, and I think like for listeners out there who do race, it's like, training is the exact opposite of racing. And I tell that to my athletes all the time because with training, we're trying to get tired and usually get tired in a quick way so that we rest, form an adaptation, get better and faster. Racing is the exact opposite. You're conserving energy while you're playing a game of the competition of racing. And so Mm -hmm. in the race, I just, I always say, just do enough to win. That's it. Sometimes That means you gut yourself hardcore, the peak efforts, the massive, the eyes bleeding, you know, all out sort of efforts. In other days, you're playing chess game all day, man. Yeah. Yeah. Take somebody's king out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. um, And that's, uh, you know, that's like, I I call it investment, energy investment, because I'm sure that you've coached a lot of people like this. I've certainly, I certainly have like. I've coached a number of cat threes and fours who just sit on the back of the race the entire time and they start missing splits um, or they're too far back for the sprint. It's like, you've got to spend some energy to get there. You can't just be like super fresh and then pass 50 riders in the final 300 meters, you know? Yeah. 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 And so as we can say these 
short phrases and laugh about them. Like we understand what it means to just do enough to win. Mm -hmm. What that actually means is you're very active. You're very in the moment. You're very aware. You're very, you're gauging efforts, sometimes strong digs to get up there. It's all about positioning. And that's, what's really hard, I think, to describe on a podcast, but kind of back to your point of what I was trying to communicate in the article of what training does is it, it builds capacity so that you can play the game better. Yeah. And you don't have to worry about just being on the struggle bus the whole time. You can be aware, you, you can, you know, do some hard digs, uh, which Allison had to do um, on the day. But she, her fatigue resistance was high because she, we did training so well. And so therefore she wasn't, you know, worried about like, oh, what's my normalized power? What's my, <laughs> what's my glucose number? Oh, man, she was like racing. Yeah. And if you're racing to that stuff, um, like you are looking at your computer when you should be looking up the road or at other people. Um, and, and that's one of the things that I, um, that I've always kind of harped on is in training. One of the things that we're trying to do is we're trying to, to, we're trying to learn our internal fuel gauge. Um, and one of the things, cause you and I talked about, uh, Chris Horner briefly, uh, before we hit record. Um, one of the things that, um, that I see him talk about is he never says, anything about power or whatever. He always says, make sure you're not going into the red zone. And that's all you need to know. Like, are you in the red or are you not in the red? Like it, that's, it's such a, a simplified version, but it's in a lot of ways when you're in a race, simpler is better. Simpler is always better. And, and I think you get there by, um, again, doing really good training, um, getting experience, of all the complications that races can have, and then you can slow it down and simplify it in a race setting. And I think too, you know, we were talking about zone, zone two and all this bullshit. Like I don't even, whew, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> zones can go out the window in my opinion, but the reason why they're here and they're good is they, it creates some common language, right? But when you're racing that language, that language doesn't apply. Mm -hmm. It's red zone or not. It's on wheels or not. It's, attack or not. I mean, it, lots of ones and zeros is what your brain should be doing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. A lot of, a lot of like very binary decisions, uh, yeah, rather than, totally. um, gray area. And, and, you know, the experience also has a lot to do with knowing what to do in the moment. But, um, so, well, speaking of simplifying things, let's unsimplify things for a minute, because one of the things that I, specialty. <laughs> thank you. One of the things that I picked out from your article is you put up the, um, one of my favorites, the color coded, uh, chart of, um, yeah. the power zones over time, over the race. And so yeah. one of the things that I see with people without good fatigue resistance is, or who spend their energy way too early, all of it, um, is we see a lot of red at the start and then it becomes orange then it becomes yellow and God forbid it becomes blue by the end. Cause that means yeah. they're barely hanging on at like 60% threshold. Yep. Um, so I picked out that, uh, do you track, Time over FTP, like do you have that kind of as a ballpark metric for a race? Yeah. Me too. And so I, I looked at, I saw 35 minutes over the threshold and over three, three hours, 40, that's, that's like normal, you know, mm -hmm. it's because the, the highest number I've seen over maybe like five hours is like nearing 50 minutes, which is a ton. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's one of the things that I picked out as, as great energy management. Um, mm -hmm. and so 
So um, I don't know. Do you have any any thoughts on on something like this and like maybe training it or using it as a target in training or something like that? Yeah. Um, well, I think it's important to realize, and, and so just to get some grounding for people who maybe haven't seen the article or don't know the the screenshot that we're talking about. In we'll WTO5. be five. Yeah, we'll be linked in the show notes for sure. Okay. Um, all it is is heat mapping of the power. The easier it is, the cooler the the color like blue the harder it is the redder it is the hotter the color and so when we're talking about getting not a ton of time in that ftp or above ftp zone is raise your ftp right Mm -hmm. raise that aerobic capacity and so the since october kind of the end of october of 2022 we're just on this mission of getting her aerobic machinery just big bigger than we had before And the way we did that was both like endurance training, but also high endurance training or high aerobic training, lots of threshold work. And then we actually skimmed off like CTL coming into these spring classics so that we had less fatigue in order to race and play the game better. But the way we did our training allowed us to supersede an FTP that she had ever done before in her whole history of racing for eight years. So when you're coming into a block of racing with your highest aerobic or anaerobic capacity, whatever you want to call it, you have more room that you can take on enemy fire, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're, and, and it hurts you less when you have bigger capacity. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally agree. And that's one of the things that I've, I've had a lot of people ask me about, uh, which is like, um, can I get better at doing more time over threshold? Because this is clearly a weakness. And I'm like, well, we can do a little bit of that, but in the long term, you know, if you could do, you know, if you could do 60 minutes, but uh, you know, to use the old uh, adage of FTP being your 60 minute power, if you could do 60 minutes over threshold in an hour for a crit, it's no longer, you know, you're, that's, that's your new threshold. Um, and having, having to dig over that less frequently makes a huge difference over time. And that's one of the things that I think a lot of folks don't appreciate oftentimes needs to be worked on the most in the off season. Um, take a rest after racing and then start to build. And that's one of the things that I, I also liked about your approach here because, you know, you, we were talking about, um, you know, your, her CTL got to like 160. She was setting some big 20 minute powers like in, in like February. And then you drop the CTL, kind of reduce the volume a lot of racing, um, freshening up and keeping the kilojoule load low. Um, but I think a lot of people might say, okay, how the hell do you get 160 CTL? Um, second of all, they would say, how long does it take to build up to that? If you've got that kind of time. And I think third, they would say, uh, well, we'll save this for a part two of this, which is like, why the hell would you want her to have her 20 minute best in like February? That sounds like peaking early. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So first of all, um, CTL, in, in my opinion, it, uh, that's the only thing we're looking at. You're looking at, you're looking at it wrong, right? So it's, it's one metric. It's also, it's valuable, but it's just a gauge of how well someone is training, how well they're holding some fitness. And so one of the strategies that you can deploy is don't drop it too low in between. Okay. So keep some fitness going. Um, and, and really like Allison and I, we, we take, frequent breaks, but they're not super long. 
maybe a week or two off. And then, and then we're still like riding, doing dance videos, yoga, all this kind of <laughs> stuff, but like, um, we're active. Right. And so that, that CTL plummet that some pro riders may deploy in their life is just something that I've learned to stay away from, like really drop an anchor for a long time. It's the same thing with my professional people. Just try to unload them mentally and physically. I mean, within a couple of weeks, physically, you're fine as long as you're sleeping. So then we get back to it. It's just not intense, right? So then as we're building up, I think 160 might've been like the peak, somewhere between 150, 160. Keep in mind though, like her, and this is what I knew, her history was she was on teams with some old school coaches in the past where they did a crap ton of volume. And this is like five, six, seven years ago, yeah. building up to CTLs that were even higher. So I knew she could tolerate a high CTL and still perform quite well. Stage racers, you kind of want that anyway. Yeah. Right. So building up to that point, you got to understand. And if you know these numbers, it's like, oh man, shit, she was tired. Right. And she mm-hmm. was. Right. But then we took our break. We go into spring classics and I knew we had the hay in the barn for the long run. Right. Because as your race recover, race recover. And, and also when you're doing a lot of these spring classics, you'll have like a lesser still world tour race, but like a lesser race, maybe on Wednesday, um, where the big guns, they, they still come out and play sometimes, but it's a good opportunity for you to get a good result. Like on a Wednesday, then you still have to recon whatever you're racing on. Um, say like Thursday or something like that. So when I was presenting this to other coaches, it's like, man, the race, she's racing twice a week. She's reconning. There's still 15, 20 hours per week and they're racing twice. That's crazy. And shuttles and transfers and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Travel stress. A lot of travel stress. And so what I've also found is like, if I can build up capacity, right? Fatigue resistance in training, they're going to handle everything better, including the transfers, including the race efforts and all this kind of stuff. Meanwhile, I knew if I could build aerobic capacity, build FTP as high as I could, we'll come into the first races and we'll get the specificity of race training in those races, meaning she'll build FRC, she'll build power for repeatability and everything will be better if we have that high FTP going in. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's the fatigue risk you take, but if you build it right, you have good timing, nothing really significantly goes wrong, like tearing an ACL, which we did in 2022, um, <laughs> then you got a better runway for it. Yeah. And, and I think that, um, cause that's one of the things that, uh, I think a lot of people probably noticed the most from your article is like, that's the, that's the eye popping number is like 160 CTL. I mean, I'm looking at one of my guys, um, and currently his CTL is like 180. Um, and you know, it's, it's, you know, he's got a big season of racing coming up is dropping. We're freshening him up and all that. Um, but even then, like he's got some, he's got some great results on a CTL mm-hmm. of one eighty. Uh, it's like, oh man, I can't wait for what's coming next, you know? Yeah. Um, but I, I think a lot of people don't realize like, what's the alternative to building up fitness and then maintaining in the spring. It's like, you've got to build while you've got a full race schedule, while you've got a full travel schedule, while you're stressed out of your mind about what if the airline loses my bags? Like where are my mm-hmm. bikes? Where are my shoes? Uh, where's my kit? All that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think too, like if you can, if you can build that capacity, right. It's, um, CTL and all, all these tools that we use as good as they are, they're not perfect. Yep. And so as CTL decays away, like right now, I don't know, she's like sitting at maybe one 
18 or something like that. Just mm-hmm. because we're in recovery week, uh, we're through race block and race block volume kind of comes to, anyway, low CTL doesn't matter because all that fitness, it's still there. We need to kind of boot it back up, uncover it and get her happy again. But like, it, it doesn't fall away that quick, especially if you have race efforts and intensity and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. However, whatever the number is, if I can get it high, then bring it down, then maintain it. That's what I'm, that's what I'm really looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really taken, I mean, kind of three years of, of, uh, three or four years of like finding that good balance, never bringing her as high as she was when she was like the kind of the worst and kind of like, blown. I mean, she had some good results that year after like a 180 um, CTL, but she was just blowing out mentally. Yeah. Legs were there, but like, so very conservative not to go that far. Yeah. Well, and so I think a lot of people are, are wondering, like, cause you know, you coach some high volume people. Uh, I coach some very high volume people and uh, these are folks who just love to ride their bikes, you yeah. know, and I'm, who are we to tell them not to, uh, well, we're the coaches, but, um, you know, you kind of want to strike a balance. Um, so how would you, how do you structure a week? Cause like a, a 160 CTL says that the average training week, uh, ballparking is like 20 to 25 hours. So, um, you know, that's, it's high, but for pro athlete, it's not that high. Mm-hmm. Like Bernal regularly does like 30 hour weeks, um, mm-hmm. or higher. Uh, so, how do you structure a 30 hour week versus like, how would you structure a 10 hour week in terms of like, let's say it's like build. Um, and you know, you're trying to add threshold power and fatigue resistance. So like, what is, what does a week look like for one of your high volume people versus a low volume people? Yeah. So what it looks like in a build, I mean, first of all, the majority of the time is endurance. Okay. Yeah. So, um, what that means is perceived effort of anywhere between four and six out of 10. And if you're using training zones, that is kind of like that zone two, even though I don't hold hard and fast to that. Let's go out there, ride your bike. Don't go super, super hard. Yeah. That's the majority. Actually, I, I, I want to stop you real quick for a second, because I think this is interesting that you say that the RPE is like four to six, because mm-hmm. for, uh, a lot of people have different RPE scales. Um, cause I've seen a lot of people say the top of endurance range is a four. I call it a five, uh, you call it a mm-hmm. six. So I think it's really interesting that we have a, a little bit of discrepancy there, but it, yeah. it really underlies that you've got to have a common language with the person you're coaching to understand you know, how this should feel, how, and all that other stuff. Yeah. And that's, that's the other thing. Like one of our first podcasts too, Coley, we were talking about threshold and I was like, yeah, it's like an eight. And you're like, no, seven, I'm like, yeah, like seven, eight. And so I think when you're working in a system, the common language is, is very important. Yeah. And when you have, you know, data that can ground in perceived effort, and then you talk through, you gauge and you know, the feel, mm-hmm. and that's really what I, what I want, like everybody to realize also my athletes to realize, keep in mind too, that like, especially when you're staying aerobic, I mean, hell I'd run it up to sure. A couple periods of seven in there. Like who cares? It's a broad range. You're out there riding your bike. Yeah. The wrong way to do, say, if a five-hour endurance ride, the wrong way to do it is attack every single segment possible, eyes bleeding, going for it, and calling your mom to pick you up on the ride home at hour four and a half. Yes, I too have been to that's team right. camps. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so that's the wrong way to do it. Um, I, I don't know. To keep it simple, let's just say um, also these high-volume riders, they're maybe not taking a day off. I mean – I'll run it out two weeks or so without a day off, three mm-hmm. weeks sometimes. But, so, but for sure, recovery rides and stuff. 
Oh yeah. 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 In fact, like what a bedrock of Allison's training is a two hour coffee ride. I love two hour coffee rides. Yep. I, One hour yeah. out, get a coffee, get some food. Yeah. Hang out for a while. Chill for an hour, TikTok. even two. Yep. Ride yeah. home. Yep. It's perfect. <laughs> so that's Monday. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we get to work on Tuesday and maybe it is like four or five hours uh, with some tempo hill climbs. Uh, if we're working on like, you know, climby hill climbs and pitchy stuff, sure, go in there. But I'm not, I'm also not docking points if she goes up into th- like a threshold or a perceived effort of eight, um, keeping it between kind of six and eight on those hill climbs and then coming back down, that kind of thing. And maybe if I'm working tempo, I, I want to accumulate maybe 60 minutes of time in zone. Let's just start there on that day, five hour ride or so. Mm-hmm. Come back. I might even do the same time and intensity the second day. I'll drop the volume a little bit, uh, three and a half, four hours. Okay. And then that day three, kind of depending on what we're working on, but I'll just, I would likely keep it around tempo 40 to 60 minutes of time in zone and maybe around three hours and somewhere in there, maybe I'll have some off the bike strength activation work going on, Mm -hmm. uh, two of the days or so. And, but really what I'm doing with that three day, it's block training. Yep. So what I'm doing is that's, that's also very Dean. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's a Dean Gollagism. Um, but I've found that to be very effective. So what I'm doing is I'm bringing the athlete in fresh. I have them do the majority of volume with intensity day one, same intensity ish or in time at intensity with a little less volume and then probably a little less time at intensity in less volume day three, day four, super chill coffee ride again, maybe some yoga. So a bike and yoga. And then, and usually if they're sleeping, cause again, an athlete that a high volume athlete, a time rich athlete is what I like to call this type of athlete. They have the time to train and they also have the time to recover. So they're sleeping about nine hours a night, which means if I have 36 hours with nine to 10 hours of sleep and probably a nap in there, they're ready to go again. Yeah. So then I'll go into either, uh, say a group ride or back to like long tempo hill climb stuff on that, um, that next day. So it'd be day six and then some volume to finish off the week. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, um, that's actually fairly similar to how I'll do it, but I've, I, I actually have a couple approaches for a high volume athlete and that's, that would be one of them is like, let's do a couple intervals, a couple days in a row. And then, you know, kind of up and down with that kind of stuff. Um, my other way is to like, do like double two days, like two, two blocks of two days of like very high volume. And the other days are nice and easy. Um, and whether or not there's intervals, you know, that, that kind of depends, but like, you know, I've, I've had a lot of success using your approach. I've had, there's, there's no one right approach to all of this kind of stuff. And so it's, I think it's really cool to hear your approach versus how I normally do it. And, and yet, you know, we've still got, uh, people who, you know, you the same as me, um, have been training for a long time and we're able to get them to even better levels of fitness and endurance, um, with different approaches. Like there's, there's no one thing that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's true. And I, and I think it's important for people to realize that because when, when you are reading an article, you're listening to a podcast and somebody says something brilliant. It's like, Oh, that's the way it's not man. like, <laughs> they're just, there's just so many ways you want to make sure the way that you're following is just not stupid. 
meaning it's not grounded in science, meaning it's not grounded in um, charisma only, right? And it's not. Are you just calling a out any of those cult coaches that we shouldn't name? <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> and and I say that with humility because it's you know in our industry, if you look good on Instagram. He's got followers. She's 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 got all those endorsements. You want to do whatever they're doing, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. And and honestly, like, man, I I was text like what we do is not that glamorous, man. I oh. sit behind a computer and think and put some workouts on there, and and okay, and then you're just like balancing the phone calls and the zooms and the voice messages and all this kind of stuff and making me and it is yeah. You know, and and you and I stress about it because I I want the athlete to have the best experience and and elevate their performance. Yeah, I truly want that every single day. But then I get super stressed out when it doesn't happen. I'm like, what the fuck am I? Doing? <laughs> and so I actually take it to heart. Um, and then somebody comes along that has right the great TikTok or Instagram, and they're doing everything wrong. And, and then they've ruined athletes and that's what makes me so sad. And it's, it's not my problem, but it makes me sad because I'm in this industry and I don't want athletes to have that bad experience. Yeah, no, I, I, I unfortunately completely agree. And having, uh, working with a lot of people who have been at those places and worked with those coaches, it's, it's, it's extraordinary. The difference that like, you know, well, because I, I used to think that, you know, another deanism is that, you know, as long as you don't screw it up too bad, these people are going to be just fine. Like these these genetic freaks who are destined for the top. Um, and it turns out it's actually easier to fuck up than you think. Yeah. Like having seen some of these training programs and some of the bad fitness that some people have had, I'm just like, how, how did it last that long? Well, I think it's important to realize that elite athletes and – I, elite athletes and like top perform, top performing people, right? You got your type, they're both type A's. And so the, the, the people I think who are listening to our shows, the, the, the athletes we work with, CEOs, business owners, lawyers, doctors, ER professionals, this kind of stuff, they want the best out of themselves every day. They want, and you got to hold them back. And the reason that like Dean says, just don't fuck them up. I mean, it's funny, but it's also true. The reason is, is like they will do anything you tell them to. And if you're wrong and it's more than they need and it's two weeks in a row, then they have a lot of problems and the yes. human body will tell them that. And they will, they, their brain will override their body and they'll just keep going. And that's the problem. Yeah. They've got that big old fatigue security blanket. Um, and what, that's a and that is a coleism. Uh, but, um, <clears throat> oh yeah, you were talking about, uh, like type A people. Um, yeah. and I actually, speaking of very type A people, um, I, early in my coaching career, I got a referral from, uh, from somebody. He said, you know, this guy's a high powered lawyer, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, charge him an arm and a leg, but he's gonna, he's gonna make you earn it. Um, and I, I talked to him and he said, you know, every single workout I do to a T, I do it exactly. I do a hundred percent of everything you put down perfectly. Uh, and I was like, all right. Um, so what's this I hear about you, uh, or, you know, see a doctor, super high cortisol levels, like you're overtrained. And he's like, well, yeah, you know, I've, I, you know, I've, I've got a busy life thing and all that kind of stuff. And, um, 
And I was like, you know, you're not, you're not doing yourself any favors by like hammering these workouts. And, he, and to him, he didn't realize the importance of the recovery and like life stress and all that. And so I, I basically told him, you say you're doing a hundred percent of your training correctly. And I think you're only doing 50% of it correctly. Um, and I talked myself out of a client right there because <laughs> he didn't want to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've not taken on people for that because as soon as you told me exactly what he said is I will follow everything to a T yeah. I man, red flags yeah, go we off. We don't want that. No. Yeah. We want, we want good feedback. We want good vibes. We want it to be hard when it needs to be hard and we need it to be easy when it needs to be easy. And and every time I have a client who who comes to me who's, you know, like near the edge or over the edge, the first thing we do is try to get them feeling good again. Then once they do, I tell them, I don't ever want you to forget this feeling. And I don't ever want you far away enough from feeling this good or remembering what it's like that, you know, I, I don't want you to forget it. Yep. Yeah. And I think, you know, for, for listeners, like the, the, that takeaway is cool. We, we love athletes that do their training program. We're not saying go off the grid, but what we're saying is just like your, your body life has these ranges of stuff that's going on. Right. And on the given day, the, the, the goal is not right at or two Watts above every interval. And then, and then just pinning yourself all freaking week because because if they do that in their training they're doing that at work they're doing it in life they're doing it with everything yeah and that's not healthy no it's it's really 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 not um and actually that that brings in that brings us to one of our 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 last questions before we get to a couple listener questions which is um you know i didn't i don't know anything about tiktok but i see allison's reels on instagram all the time about the dancing Mm -hmm. and you know at first i was like Oh, this is kind of odd. And then she did the, I want to rock thing with the, the Rebay boulder. I laughed oh, my ass yeah. off. Uh, that, was, that was pretty, that was a great was a one. one. Um, and I, and it made me think, um, that the level of happiness and motivation and, and low levels of stress, um, you know, the, I, I think a lot of the times we think that they really only apply to average people with stressful jobs. Like you listed a whole bunch just now. Um, but they also apply to people at the top too. Um, so, so as a coach, how do you approach the role of keeping somebody happy and motivated, but also stress management? And like, especially when the sources of stress can come from, you know, pressure, team, social media, you name it. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe you don't want to name anybody or anything right now, but <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's everything, yeah. Yeah. Um it, I mean, that's probably the toughest question to answer. Uh how I do it is I try I try to understand the athlete, I try to have as much empathy as I can. And I think my experiences have lent to that being a team director, working for some very eccentric people, working with very um, elite athletes, working with professional people that have this need to win at all costs mm-hmm. sort of thing. And then trying to, and then I would say educating myself with like, like as much psychology in kind of like awareness sort of situations where it's like all of, a lot of this is self-imposed. A lot of this is coming from this outside 
and you're allowing it to come in, right? Yeah. So that's where like this pressure is coming from. But then when you're in the life of a professional bike racer, they they got to look good, smell good, and be on the podium too, right? Well, they got to smell good too after those races. <laughs> um, that's why they take a shower after Paraguay. And, and that's the thing where, it, well, with socials, because I remember I was, I was uh, directing a team like 20... 13, 14, 15-ish, something like this, somewhere in there. And, and like all of a sudden, the social media component became a huge part of their contracts. And I had some riders who were totally cool with it, totally crushing. I had some riders that were like, oh, anxiety, yeah. right? I don't, I'm not, I don't look that good. I don't, I'm not that great. But it's, it's, it's become part of the job. I think with Allison, like she's just, it's not like, you know, she saw TikTok and saw the opportunity. She was crazy, goofy, wacky Allison before TikTok occurred, right? That's just a channel for her to express herself. And it works really well for her. I think for the really like introverted riders, the social media is not that great. So they have their own pressures themselves. But I think as a coach, I think as a team director, my job has always been to... uh insulate the rider from the chaos enough so that they can perform and do their job while still being informed about their duties that they need to do. Yeah. And so in, from a coaching standpoint, that means get them super fit, get them really resistant to fatigue and talk through some shit. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think with Allison, you know, we, cause somebody uh, in this presentation I had, I was like, I don't think I actually have even talked to her on the phone since Perry Roubaix because <laughs> it's all been training peaks, comments, WhatsApp, WhatsApp voice messages, zooms, like, like recorded zooms back to each other and all this kind of stuff. But like, yet we communicate pretty much daily. Yeah. And so the, the communication bit is very important because I think that that gets you that empathetic awareness of like the pressures that the athlete's dealing with. And sometimes you just have to have family time where they can come talk to you, let their hair down, talk about all these things that they have to navigate. And then you have to soak it in, but still tell them what they – encourage them with what they need to do and realize what matters and what doesn't. Best way I can answer it. Yeah. I mean, I think – I think that that's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a good answer. I'm sure it's not the answer a lot of people were looking for. Um, but there's yeah, probably not. I, well, I mean, I, I face the same pressures with a lot of my riders too. Like, um, I've got riders looking for world tour contracts. I've got riders who are, you know, going to Europe for the first time. I've got riders, you know, in Europe who are looking for X, Y, Z there. They need to do, there's all sorts of stuff to navigate. And, the number of things that the amount of bullshit that gets piled on, on some of these people is absolutely unbelievable. And, and, you know, I think, I think in our role as coaches, it's, you know, we are, you know, we're there for their performance, but also, uh, you know, we can't help, but be human and, you know, feel for, feel for these people who are in a really, really tough spot. Um, mm -hmm. and so I, um, you know, I tell everybody like, look, like, especially right now, especially if I see like a, any signs of like overtraining or like the stress is too high and the recovery is too low. I'm just like, do whatever you think is going to be the most fun. Do what you're motivated to do. And when, when, in, when in doubt, less is more. So take a couple of days off the bike. And cause I've had a lot of clients who are like, man, I took, 
you know, I took my season break. I was off the bike for a month. My legs felt amazing. And I was like, yeah, but you don't have any fatigue resistance. So like, we're not going to get you off the bike for a month before your goal races or anything like that. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's tough to manage. It, it is tough to manage. And, and, and the reason I think I gave my answer is because there, there's a lot of, uh, coleism. It depends. Um, <laughs> so <an> everybody is, <laughs> right. And so there's all these individual, like unique situations where you could describe one, then I try to answer it, but I'd say on a whole, and as a general rule, whether it's the professional athlete or, um, you know, the, the family guy chasing down Iron Man and trying to put it all in like, yeah, I'd agree with your answer of let's pump the brakes to do what sounds fun, reduce overall stress and fatigue. That's step one. Yeah. But in the way of navigating all these like other stressors. I think you go back to the training, the tools that we use does a really good job of modeling what human physiology can do without all those other stressors. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And where the coach comes in is to filter and have this like real life stress score that's associated with their training stress score for the day. And, and that's the only way I know how to describe it. Like I'm going to steal that. Life stress LSS score. and TSS. Yes. Yeah. Steal away. And, and people are looking for like a, a thing to like attach to us and do CGM and glycogen and hydration and filter all this. That's going to make it worse. In my opinion, <laughs> I still think the human communication is the only way to, to like get there. I, I 1000% agree. Um, which is probably why I'm so tired. I mean, it, I mean, not, not that, not that we're asking for sympathy, but it does take a lot of energy. Um, I'm, I'm told this is emotional energy. Uh, I'm, I'm on the fence as to whether I've got emotions or not. I always thought I was a robot, but, um, you know, we can only live in the matrix so long. Um, but, uh, I, I, it's just like, it, it is an exhausting job in a way that I didn't, I was never exhausted doing carpentry for 20 years in Boston. It's like, I never got home and was like, I am mentally drained. Like that never happened. Like I would get home and my back hurts, knees hurt, hands hurt. Um, you know, I'm, I'm still full from having way too much at lunch. Um, that, that kind of stuff. It, but it was like, it's, it's so, it's so different. Um, and I, I immediately sympathize with everybody with an office job who says I come home drained and I was like, ah, shut up. <laughs> and now I'm like, Oh my God, I feel you so bad. Yeah. It's the thing. And it's funny too, like during COVID everybody, well, not everybody. Okay. But a lot of people had got a work from home situation. Okay. Mm -hmm. And it is, or it was what it was And when people would say, Oh, it's so like having to deal with this and that and not going here. I'm like, I've been doing this since, you know, 2006, basically like a work from home sort of more remote sort of situation. And so nothing changed in that way, but yet I'll still say five thirty or six o'clock go from upstairs to downstairs and I'll like walk into the kitchen and Kristen's like, okay, so blah, 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 my wife. And I'm like, I just, I need like, <laughs> yeah, give me a <laughs> like, second. Let me decompress. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and that's where I think like real life, you know, the commute creates space. And for athletes who have high stress jobs, positions, professional athletes who um, have to deal with these high pressure situations, going to the bike right away and just like getting the energy out there, I'm going to conquer this. I would not encourage you to do that first. I would take some time. 
I would unwind the brain because oftentimes you go back to what we were talking about with the, these type A personalities of just holding some people back, getting some stress out of their life. The one thing that they can control is essentially how hard they go on the bike, Mm -hmm. right? They can control the bike. I, with one of our media directors, he used to say, you hide behind the bars, like emotionally. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Because like a lot of cyclists or another terminal, and this might be a Deanism, but like, uh, Danny Pate, do you know Danny? Uh, no. He, uh, he used to ride for, he's domestic for team sky. And then first year rally, um, before United health. Anyway, Mm -hmm. Colorado Springs, um, pro dude. He did Cheyenne Peak, oh man, uh, Cheyenne Mountain, I, I think like 20 times or something like that in a day, which is the five, uh, 5K hill climb. The first Everest thing, huh? <laughs> yeah. Th- yeah. This is before Everest was a thing. And Dean, I remember saying, he's like, man, something's either got to be going real good in his life or real wrong in his life to do that. <laughs> yep. And that's so true in our culture, right? Yeah. Where we hide behind the bars, I think emotionally, because- the bike feels good and the more is kind of better when we're talking about these high CTLs, like whew, 180, man, we're going to be getting some good stuff. Out. <laughs> True. But the cost associated with 180 is very high relative to the, everything that you've sacrificed in your life. Yeah. So you got to realize that. So I think the, um, the one last very general question and we'll hit some listener questions real quick is going to be, um, the last thing you mentioned in the article I wanted to touch on is, uh, as you said, racing to your strengths. Uh, and this is something that I, I have to talk with a lot of riders about where, um, where, you know, in, especially if they live in a a region where they cannot raise their strengths, like if you are a good climber and you've got great power from like 10 to 30 minutes and the longest climb you're ever going to race is five, like you're in trouble, like getting a result you know, in that area, you know? And so I, I oftentimes have people saying like, man, can we just work on X, Y, Z? And I'm like, well, you just did this, that, and the other thing that's the opposite of X, Y, Z. So, so we don't want to, we don't want to go backwards and we don't want to do double work. We could have just started where we were and done something else. Um, so race to your strengths is what I tell them. And if you, this is your profile, you should do X, Y, Z, and you're not going to win every race, but you can learn how to use what you've got. Um, so what, so that's why I liked you mentioning race to your strengths. Um, and so, you know, maybe not Alice in particular, but you know, I'm sure like, you know, your amateur and pro clients alike have also struggled with this kind of thing too. Yeah. Um, I think the race to your strengths, you know, Perry Roubaix goes to Allison's strengths. So it fit into her overall goals for the year, which was targeting the end of the spring classics Kent Welmigan, as well as Perry Roubaix. And then uh, we dovetailed into Pan Ams, which worked out pretty good from a timing standpoint. Yep. She was very tired, though, for that. I bet. Um, so she's not, for anybody who follows Women's Pro Tour, she's, she's not a pure hill climber. She's got some like wicked one minute power, decent sprinter, but she's always had a good sprint in late in the game, mm-hmm. like when everyone else is tired. When their so sprint her, comes down, her sprint's still there. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. So she loses less. And that that plays to this race. Meanwhile, she's actually a really good bike handler, despite being a triathlete in her former years. Uh, dig. <laughs> and, um, and she knows bike positioning. 
Now to learn that bike positioning, unfortunately got to hit the ground a few times, which she's also done, but she bounces like a rubber ball. And so, um, she knew, so, and I said this on my presentation yesterday, it's like for over a year, she's been rehearsing how this race would go. Cause this is her eight race. Yeah. This is her strength. She knows how to do cobbles, all this kind of stuff. So, so the point is, is like when you race to your strengths, if the race is outside of your strengths, don't, don't put as much psychic energy or mental energy into that one. If you got to do it, you got to do it. You probably play a different role in the team or you play a different role, say in life, whatever it is. And you just get through it, but learn, learn how yes. everyone else races it, learn how you can deploy some tactics to, uh, if that race comes again. And, and, re- and that's the gamification of it, which is in my opinion, super fun. Like this is why we do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. A lot of my experienced Me- racers are a lot, they're, they're like, you know, I'm not the strongest, but I love the chess game and they can get some good mm-hmm. results. And actually one of my clients, um, you know, some of, uh, some of my other friends who, who know him and know of him swear his threshold is like a hundred Watts higher than it is because of the results mm-hmm. he gets. And he's just like, nah, man, I can just, I can just read the race. He's so yeah. good at it. When he mm-hmm. retires from racing, he's going to come on the podcast and tell all the secrets. But not before then, because yeah. he doesn't want anybody else to be that good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I got uh, it. Brad Huff was like that. I don't. I don't know if you. Know. I. Oh, I mean, all these people I haven't met personally, but yeah, I remember Brad Huff racing. He was phenomenal. Yeah. Like, yeah, I, I would. I would actually give a shout out to Robin Carpenter as being a yeah. really savvy bike racer too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one thing we keep on saying playing the game of chess, and I'll, I'll give uh, kudos to Mara Abbott, who's a really good yes. friend. Yes. And I remember we were, you know, up in Boulder, probably some vegan restaurant talking. <laughs> And like, she, she goes, you know, I had a realization that all these people were just pawns and I could do things to move them where I want them to be. And so the bike race just became a chess match for mm-hmm. me. And I was like, what? And I was like, oh, cause in, if you know, bike racing, you know, chess, you know what that means. Cause there's all these other dynamics that you can watch six hours of bike racing on TV and enjoy it. Right. Or you can watch, it's like watching baseball. There's a lot of other shit going on that unless you know the game, you don't really realize. And when you're there, it's like, um, it's like when you watch F1 and you can watch all the, all the camera angles and everything. But when they go to that, that first person in car footage from the driver's perspective, yeah, it is like, I'm like, I thought I wanted to, you know, do that kind of thing a long time ago. Now I see that and I'm like, there's no fucking way I could do that. It's so fast. It's so crazy. It's so hairy. Um, I don't have the balls, frankly. Mm-hmm. And um, and it's it's the same in bike racing where until you are there doing it and you are learning how a group behaves, it's almost like like learning to uh, to negotiate mob rule. Negotiate mob what? rule. Oh, yes. Yeah, for sure. 100%. And that's where I think, you know, that's where racing is the opposite of training. So if you're thinking training mindset when you're in a race, meaning going hard, and that's what I should be. Hell no. Yeah. Very opposite. And I just gave a presentation on flow and flow has been this concept of flow. Read it, look it up, get the book by Mihaly. Chiksit Mihaly is the author this this is what elicits high performance in individuals is when you get to that point where it is sheer chaos people are you know ejecting left and right carbons crashing behind you and you're just like calm mm-hmm. going to the finish line yeah. 
right? And, and that's the point where we want to get an athlete as a high performer going into this, where you're not worried, you're aware of all that stuff, but you ain't worried about mm-hmm. it. Right? Yeah. And you're not, you're definitely not worried about your normalized power. <laughs> Fucking hell. <laughs> oh man. Um, so let's get to some listener questions. I asked this up on the Instagram. Uh, we got some good ones and uh, I saved the best for last. So can't wait. Uh, so we can we can we do like a call-in show, like NPR, like have them come on. Uh, yeah, but we're gonna have to have a producer screen things because otherwise they're just gonna c- call in and be like, "Well, how come uh, how come you guys encourage people to eat because you have insulin?" <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, uh, <laughs> we would definitely get that. <laughs> All right. So <laughs> first question is. Uh, we can, we can be a little short on these. Uh, why build FRC early in season? If it's a weakness, build it early in the season. So you got more of it late in the season. Yeah. And it's, and racing is easy to maintain FRC. Yeah. And I would, I would add that, um, that if you, it looks like your like, you know, FRC numbers, let's say 30 to 60 second power, something like that is falling especially if it's been high before, it usually doesn't mean that you need to train it more. It usually means you need to rest. Yeah. Um, yep. Yeah, so do you add any race specific training? Um, so I guess uh, that it would be like um, maybe, you know, for cobbles for Perry Bay or like specific TT courses, anything like that. Yeah. Um, I mean, you, you don't have to like on that pro or hopefully you don't have to on the pro tour level because the, the mechanism is built in for a lot of the recon, a lot of the pre-ride and seeing the course ahead of time. Meanwhile, like I said, in, in the buildup of training and kind of the, um, what you plan on is you build general, then you get specific through racing unimportant races kind mm-hmm. of, and then you get into the important races. So you're using the unimportant races to get some of that specificity yeah. that I don't do in race prep for Allison. Now, if it's a, like a master's person, you have to weave it into the system more. And the one thing I'd say with any important race, um, yeah, if you can see the course, any of it way better, way better. Yeah. Um, and that was one of the things that I was thinking about asking you that I decided not to was about, you know, how much, you know, what's the difference in, you know, amateur versus pro level with like course recon and all that kind of stuff. Cause I would assume, and sometimes I'm wrong about this cause I've got some clients where it's just like, Oh wait, you've got what kind of resources? Okay. Let's, <laughs> I guess this is all going to fall on, fall on me and you then. Um, but I would assume, you know, a team like EF has really good support. It's got, you know, really good uh, performance staff and all that, and they would take care of that. So I figured that was probably just, you know, obvious. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And, but I think like, and I'll back up and say, especially if it's technical. Now, if it's just a oval, you know, circuit race, and, and you know, there's nothing out there. Mm-hmm. Okay, probably just get a lap in before you race. Cool. Yeah. But like, the more technical it is, the better. In fact, as a mountain bike team director for years, I mean, we would get to the course like Wednesday night set up. We'd pre ride Thursday, Friday. We'd race either Friday night or Saturday and Sunday. And the, I mean, we spent two days recon. Mm-hmm for a weekend race. So it's important. The more technical it is. Yeah, I agree. Um, let's see. So what was Jackson's biggest week in training volume and hours? Uh, and how do you structure a normal high volume training week? Well, we already touched on the second one. So what was your biggest week in hours? Yeah, we, we had a couple 30 hour weeks. Um, 
Yeah, we had a couple 30-hour weeks. And I think like, you know, maybe, um, but it was it was like maybe 1,200 TSS, mm-hmm. maybe 13, something like yeah, that. Yeah, that's um, like normal for 30-hour week. Like it, it actually, it actually mm-hmm. sounds a little bit low, um, but yeah, like probably not a ton of intervals, probably just a lot of good volume and yeah. a lot of, a lot of snacks and naps. Yeah, exactly. And that's where, again, too, like if I'm going to really push on the gas pedal for intensity, I'll, I'll drop the volume a little bit. So that's where I think, uh, like this, the week we did Valencia, I think that was like one of her higher, um, TSS weeks. And that was like 14, 1500. Mm-hmm. And, but that was also concentrated in like five days. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. So that, that makes a big difference. And especially with the recovery period from five hard days of training like that, it's like, it's like, yeah. it's like in the U S here, everybody who did Redlands, then Pan Am and is now at Gila. Oh my God. I cannot imagine feeling good at Gila after all that. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> are there any types of training Allison was resistant to? Um, I think that's training modalities or anything like that, but, uh, maybe, maybe we could generalize that. Cause I'm sure, sh- I'm sure, um, because one of the things I think as as coaches is that it's part of our job to communicate well with athletes about what's going to happen, what we're expecting, and um, and how to also how to handle it when things don't turn out as we expect. Yeah, yeah. So where I was going to go with that answer is <clears throat> no, not this year and not last year. Um, I would say the reason why we sh- so I first met her in like 2014 or 15. And I was working on a women's pro tour team at the time um, where she was being coached by Dean, like I said, and I was there as assistant to Mari and I was coaching um, two or three other athletes on the team. And so, and then also schlepping the stuff and handing bottles, working on bikes, hoping I wasn't fucking it up. And uh, (laughs) so we first met there and she was just, you know, goofy, quirky, like super cool. And we got along. Then she went off to these other teams. And so when she came back, she's like, okay, I like, I always liked your approach. I like your communication. Why should I be doing this training that I'm prescribed right now? I'm like, eh, I don't think you should. And here's why. And so, so we started kind of like toe in like that. But what I recognize is she wanted to know why she was doing what she was doing. Yeah. It kind of didn't matter what. So as long as she knew the why, and it had some rational sense because she's smart too. I mean, not her first rodeo. As long as she knew why, she was good with it. And the more that I could encourage why I'm doing five hours with four by 15 hill climb or something like that versus just five hours, then she got it. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, I think as a coach, if you got an athlete really pushing back on why am I doing this? I, you miss something along the way. I, I agree with that. And I, I also think that, uh, when people understand why, and actually uh, included in why for me is also like, also comes to how do you, how do you beat the prescription? Like, how do you, how do you overperform on a workout? Like if it's VO2 max or if it's sprints or if it's FTP or sweet spot or an endurance ride, how do you overperform that? And having different targets of like, you know, for FTP, I don't want you adding Watts unless you, unless it's somebody I feel like they know where their FTP is. And if it goes up, okay, they can feel it out. But for a lot of people, it's like, don't add more power, add time. And like understanding the mechanisms of adaptation helps people make better decisions on the day. 
like I tell people like with VO2 max training, a lot of people think the recovery intervals need to be like one-to-one and I'm like, no, just rest until you're ready to go again. Cause these are fucking hard efforts and we need to be able to go that hard. Yeah. And for VO2, that's, that's definitely something that I've changed over the past couple of years is the communication of, all right, I'm going to write it as one-to-one, but take whatever you yeah. need. Right. Or I'll write it as maybe like one to 1.2 or something, (laughs) but take whatever you need to create really good quality power. Then I think the other kind of like helpful thing, this is the Tim Cusackism is when you're doing any training, think intensive or extensive. And when you can communicate to the athlete, what you're trying to do, then the athlete can make a decision on the fly better. Mm -hmm. Meaning if we're trying to say increase FTP and we're doing some shorter FTP intervals. If you are feeling good, I'll give green light thumbs up to go a little bit harder. But if we're doing three by twenties, harder is not the goal. Yeah. yeah. Longer. Is Completely agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> are there differences between training and developing riders, like average riders, I guess, versus world tour pros? Yeah. Major difference. Um, I think it's, it's also important to communicate that as you go in, in the development is crucial. And I think with some of my juniors right now that are coming up the ranks, I tell them very often when they're going into huge weeks, like we talked off camera about Redlands, I had some juniors there. Um, you're just going to get your teeth kicked in every single day. And if you survive the next day, great. That's a win. That's a win in itself yeah. because that's developing you. You're learning, you're learning what speed is in a race. You're learning what the big dogs are doing. Um, and so when you're developing a rider like that, you're, you can be constantly on the edge of that, like fatigue, a little burnout, that kind of stuff. And and you want to drag them back before that happens, Mm -hmm. but you want to give them enough of that experience. If they have these huge, these bigger goals to go to this stage, what you don't want is to coddle them. And then you throw them in with their first contract and all this kind of stuff. Then they're like, Holy crap, no way. And then they quit. That's yes. I I mean, it it kind of dovetails with the question I've got from a handful of people, not a lot, but a handful of people over the years, which is like, how come I can't like skip all racing for like two years and then come out guns blazing with like all the Watts in the world and then just win everything. And my answer is always like, you need the experience because no, you can do that. You just race pro tour and then take a year off and then race gravel. (laughs) Oh, 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 that's for gravel racing. I I was talking about, I was talking about real racing. (laughs) (laughs) What, What is real here? Um, just kidding. Oh I don't God. know. That's Apparently funny. father time is, uh, is racing gravel. Alejandro Valverde. Oh, really? He is father time. Yeah. But that's shocking. Where? I don't like, know. Wherever there's there. dirt roads. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. They're, they're re-graveling roads in Europe. I, I, so actually, funny. I think, I think this weekend Ingvar is racing him in a gravel race. So we'll see what happens. Interesting. Um, yeah. so, um, yeah, so development on on world tour riders. Actually, this is a question I've gotten in like consults from people, and sometimes people on certain teams, which I'll remain nameless. Um, which is like, you know, if, certain, if somebody's VO two max is X, do we need to train it? Uh, like, can we skip it? And and a lot of the time, my answer is like, you know, because VO two max is is a large part of aerobic development, but it's not the part. But it's like you know, something you need to work on, especially for if you're trying to add more was to somebody, um, however you approach it. Um, and it's like, my, my answer is usually, you don't know 
if somebody's got more room there until you push on it. And then you see what yeah. comes out and if it costs you anything on the other side. Like can you like if somebody needs to do an individual pursuit, yeah, okay, sure. Whack three minute intervals all the time. But yeah. so it needs a time trial, is that the best way to do it? Like there's a like so the question of like developing a world tour rider, sometimes it's I would say sometimes it's like this like physiologically, you get a lot of the same targets as like you know, juniors and stuff, but like the, the experience is a lot more there. And so you can think more about fitness versus like getting somebody race experience. Yeah, exactly. And I think to that point, I've gone away with absolutes really. And in the way I coach is like, I'm training, like, like I'm training the individual athlete and I'm training to get super fit. And then I train like energy systems and then specificity. And I'd say whether the VO2 is 60 or 70 or 80, whatever, right? I, I use models that I know are reliable, but it doesn't matter what the number is. It matters about the relative to FTP and it matters if it's, say, going up or staying the same. And so then if you identify that there could be more room there, yeah, press into it. Mm-hmm. Go find it. Yeah. Test it. Well, so um, I guess my question for you in that vein yeah. is like when you get somebody who's been kind of at a fitness plateau for a while, mm-hmm. you know, you seem like me where I say, I bet we can find more. Let's at least try. Um, yeah. As opposed to going, well, this is probably all you've got. It's like you yeah. don't know until you go looking for it. Yeah, for sure. And so I've been doing that a lot over the past two, three years with my athletes, with myself and my athletes always surprise me because it's usually, there's usually more there and you got to be tricky or you got to be, you got to be careful so that you do it at the right time. You don't cook them out, but like, yeah, there's usually more there and it's usually good if you do it right. Agreed. Um, next question is how do you balance hyping up your athletes versus setting realistic goals? So I think, I think you actually just touched on this with your juniors at Redlands. Yeah. I don't hype, honestly. Um, I don't, I'm not a coach that is like in your face and and I don't motivate. You don't do the big locker room speeches at halftime or anything like that. (laughs) I'm like Ted Lasso, man. Like just, just believe, have some good vibes going on, do, do the work. That I will Google him after this Um, podcast. Well, we can talk about that. <laughs> I think it's a, a combination of Roy, Beard, and Ted Lasso would make the best coach possible. Um, but yeah, I, I think like to, to be real, um, through the process of coaching, you really, you're trying to get them to become their best through these, educate them about what you're trying to do in training. All right, now here's the race. Okay, all those girls are going to be there. All right, now we're going to talk through this. And if I'm getting feedback of like, stress or anxiety from the athlete like no because here's what we did in training and you remember when you got let out by your teammate and we did this yeah that's probably how it's gonna go so what you're doing is you're just either creating scenarios or reminding scenarios of how good they were to like inspire them more than motivate you believe in them when they get anxious about like holy shit this is gonna be super hard it's like yeah but like we've already done this it's all good <laughs> then if you have somebody going into okay it's going to be like fight club and I've never done this before. Then it's like, yep, you're going to get punched in the mouth and then you got to go. Yeah. And, and so you just, and so you create it so that maybe you overcreate 
a very bad scenario so that when they have a bad scenario, it's like, oh, I guess it's not as bad as coach thought. So then I'll keep going. That's not, that's not a bad strategy. I should use that one. Um, yeah, actually. And I, I'm similarly not, uh, not a hyper. Um, I'm, I'm, You're robot. I'm coldly logical. Uh, my girlfriend is all, she alternately loves it and hates it. Um, and so, uh, so one of the things that I always try to do is I always try to, at, at the very least, just never blow smoke up somebody's ass. I'm never yeah, like, you know, go out there and just believe in yourself and you're going to win. It's like, well, you know, this is what I think would be a reasonable result for you. Um, and I think as those, uh, those promises and predictions come true and they, and they see that, you know, I've got not only their best interests in mind, but also that what I say is going to happen actually does happen. And, you know, if I say this is a reasonable goal and they accomplish it or a little better, it's a big win, even if it's like 20th place, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like to that point, you use data points or you use truth to instill belief. And that's what's a very effective tool from a coaching standpoint. If you're just like, I believe in you. That's <laughs> fucked up. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, all right. So last two questions. Uh, any specific workouts to improve fatigue resistance and is it difference between road races and gravel? So we can, we can keep to road races for now. Yeah. Real races. Oh, yeah. well, Roubaix is a little, a little gravelly, but the, the rocks are pretty big. Rocks are big. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I mean, so fatigue resistance again, like I'm pretty big fan of is getting that aerobic engine high and well-tuned increasing FTP as much as possible because again you'll have more room to take on aerobic and anaerobic fatigue right so you just you fatigue less quickly relative to everyone so that's always my first strategy I think from a specific standpoint once we get the FTP high meaning you're not leaving any money on the table then you can get into some uh unique like hard on off type workouts, but I don't really use that. I use training races to do it. Um, and it's, and I use moments. So, and then I'll say how I test it. And I use races where you're just kind of silly, like you're doing stuff. And it's like, when the opportunity comes, just like fucking send a flyer, get off the front. And then you're just like gutting yourself all day. That's going to improve some fatigue resistance, right? Just cause like a four hour time trial, that'll do it. <laughs> Which was just kind of like getting bum again for, for her a little bit. Mm-hmm. Like that really, we had our highest four and a half hour power ever that day. Anyway, um, with Allison. So, but then how I test it is I'll have somebody do something like, um, you know, burn off two or 2,000 kilojoules of work, do the 20 minute effort. Uh, same thing with the five minutes. So I'm going to see what they can do fresh versus fatigued in the way of a five and 20 minute or whatever is the sports specificity, um, that you're trying to accomplish. So that's, that's how I do it. But I think like racing, in my opinion, does a very good job of doing that. we can talk about workouts if you want. Yeah. I was actually going to say, uh, well, general training principles, but I think it's interesting you test that because I don't, because pretty much when somebody goes to race, we see everything we need, we need to see anyway. Um, and also, I think anybody would tell you that 2000 kilojoules of racing is quite different than 2000 kilojoules of like, you know, endurance riding or tempo even. Um, so, so that's one of those things where, um, I, I, I like to just go, I know this is going to improve this and then magically somehow it does weird. 
right? <laughs> um, so like, what's your, like, give me like two, uh, either workouts or like training principles, like, like for structuring a week, like how would you, if you want to work on your fatigue resistance for a week and let's say you've got infinite time, like how would you, how would you approach that? Yeah. Actually, let's, um, let's, let's say race specific fatigue resistance, not like, you know, not like riding tempo for eight hours, like a gravel race. <laughs> yeah. Cause I was going to say like, cause you open yourself up to even like the, you know, testing 20 minute after you do X amount of kilojoules, mm-hmm. right. And that X amount of kilojoules can be done aerobically or anaerobically. So then you start to open the can of worms. Yeah. Right. Um, interestingly, Allison Jackson's fatigue resistance this year is much lower than last year for two reasons. One, FTP is higher. Mm. Two, we haven't done that test. I did it last year. (laughs) So the Um, data reflects, so uh, so the the metric and data reflects just the data because you haven't tested it, right? Exactly. But but to Coley's point, like I knew it was there, so I didn't. I didn't have to recreate it. Like I knew it was there because I saw it in races, yeah. right? And that's what I think is really important if you're a racing athlete. So uh, fatigue resistant workouts. Um, really, I, I think first it comes down to you have to get fatigued in order to resist fatigue. And so <laughs> I'd say a, a tried and true sort of situation where you can do that three by twenties are really like hard threshold, like on it and maybe some like moments over. I'm not like under overs. You can kind of poo poo those all day, but like just get a pitchy hill climb or have somebody kind of attack you along the way. So that you get some anaerobic contribution to the effort. Um, so it's not just pure steady. That's a really good workout. I agree. I, that is one of my very favorite ways. And that's one of the ways I've counseled people to, uh, who I consult with to, to, work on their fatigue resistance is like, like do FTP or sweet spot or over under is like basically to, well, not to f- actual failure, but close to failure. Like get to like, yeah, an, get fun. to like an eight out of nine out of 10. Well, cause, cause for me, I'm like, well, you want to not, Oh, yeah. you mean each. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah, don't want to, gotcha. you don't want to like bury yourself one day so hard. Like I had a client who misread, misread a workout and I think I gave her like four to maybe I think six was the reach goal by 15 minutes. Uh, FTP over the course of a six hour workout, which, and she had done, mm-hmm. you know, like four or five by 15 previously. And I was like, Oh, I don't know where the fatigue is. So we'll give a range. So she went out and did like, I think it was eight or nine by 15. And mm-hmm. she was like, I had to eat so much. It took so long. Mm-hmm. I barely got it done. I was hanging on for dear life after like six. And I was like, go back and read the workout again. She was like, Oh shit. Yeah. And it took her two weeks I, to I, recover from that. Well, I believe that, but I, I kind of love it when athlete, like when I have high, like work, like big work sets like that and the athlete gets lost in it and they're just like, fucking do one more. <laughs> like that's, that's a good, that's a good sign. Number one. Um, number two, I call these edge finding workouts because it brings you up to your edge and you, you look over, sometimes you fall off like, like she did. Um, and you're really looking to just put yourself in that hurt locker to do yeah. that. Um, motor pacing is another good way. So that's like, <laughs> You can really, if you're on the the motor, if you're on the scooter and you're going, you can read that athlete and get them to the point where they're like on the edge and then you dial it back down and then you go and then you dial it back down. So that's another kind of unique way I do it, but that's a very like, that's not going to happen. That's a, that's a world tour level 
work out for sure. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, so the reason why that's good, and if anybody has resources to do it, I mean, work hire Coley or hire uh, Frank Overton or somebody like that that in Boulder to guide you through it because it is a very it's a great workout. It's describing exactly what we're talking about: resistance to fatigue at race pace, high leg speed, at effort beyond what you think you can. And I think oftentimes when you're training solo, that's a little harder to do. I think you have a unique athlete that can do that. Um, a unique athlete where I'll tell them this too, go, and I've done this workout myself and I've had athletes do this, but it's only like three. I'll say, all right, let's go 30 minute all out, find a hill climb to do it. And if you're feeling good, just keep going. If you got the real estate, go until you cannot pedal, go. And it's phenomenal what happens because usually I get more, like I, you get longer and I get more power and then that can build a lot of confidence in there. Yeah. Yeah. I think the confidence is a big one too. Cause, cause one of the workouts that I have is I'll have people do like one minute efforts with kind of long rests and I'll have, or like five minutes or something like that. And I'll have them do it for hours. And, you know, I'll, I'll like, I'll set an upper limit. Like maybe we'll go to like 12 to 15 by one minute over the course of like four or five hours. But, you know, when you get to the end of that, you're, you're gearing up for that last one. You're like, man, do I have it? Do I have this in the tank? And you start pedaling sometimes. Yes. A lot of the times, no. And it's like, okay, we found the limit. Um, and then there's a lot of recovery comes on the end of that one. Yeah. So one back to Dean Dollars, if I can. <laughs> Uh, one of his, and I, and I did this workout with a few of my elite mountain bikers, but, uh, when Allison Dunlap won world championships in 2001 leading up to that, he had, um, 30 by one-on-one off all out, like all out for the set, right? One-on-one-off, 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 uh, just go to, and I mean, Allison, from what I recall, uh, and I, I know Allison well, and know Dean, um, like, on the trail side, like barfing, like couldn't move. <laughs> I, th- I think from what I remember, but in, in, in a, we're saying all these like gruesome workouts to not say, go do that workout tomorrow, build up to it and also test yourself. And this is another thing that I see people like, be it a new AI or some, like get away from zones and don't test yourself. And we'll just set your FTP because the algorithm knows bullshit is like, how are you ever going to know if you get better? If you don't go test yourself. Yeah. You need, you need that, you you need that feedback mechanism of, of, you know, uh, am I improving? Okay. Let's go find out if I'm improving. Um, and a lot of the times, um, you know, I'm sure you, you've got as many as I do where we've got ways to know that something's working without ever testing it. Like kind of like we were talking about Mm -hmm. with fatigue resistance. Um, but at the same time, like if you're a self-coached athlete and you want to find out if X training intervention works, you have to test it. You've got to find it because if we're we're training for performance, we're not training to improve hematocrit or you know reduce lactate or whatever. We're training to win bike races. Yeah, full stop. Um, I had one more thought on that, and I completely forgot what it was. Um, okay, whatever. Let's move on. Uh, last question is from somebody named Emma, who says, "My two fave coaching dudes." Hello. What up? <laughs> That's the question. That's the whole question. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that's the answer. <laughs> How you doing, Emma? Oh man, um, 
All right. So, uh, do, do you have any other thoughts, um, that kind of, you know, maybe came up and, uh, we didn't quite touch on before we uh, wrap up here? I mean, so many thoughts, I, you know, first I'll, I'll say too, like, it's always, it's always fun talking with you. I, I don't consume a, a ton of podcasts and I certainly do not consume cycling podcasts, even though ironically I run one, you run one. <laughs> when I do it is your normally yours. Cause you go like balls deep on stuff that people either shouldn't or don't but it's super fun to like hear that and then somehow you come out and you have some applicability to it and it's usually stick to the basics (laughs) (laughs) so i really do appreciate what you're doing here on this podcast um i think it's fun when we can get together as as you know i would say two different coaches like we got some different methods we got some different lingo but at the same time we also have very common uh, concepts that we deploy to our athletes to make them yeah. better. And I think it's super rich when you can have that in this industry, you can openly share that you can come together, talk and learn from each other. And meanwhile, you can record the conversation and have other people learn from it too. Everything I do, I, I would say any successes my athletes have had, it's truly on them. Like you're, you're a guide, you're a helper along the way. And hopefully, yeah, you garner those successes, but I've like fucked up a ton too. And hopefully you're just learning together with your athletes. And if you have a coach out there and you're, you're put in some stuff that we talked about, um, resonates and you go to your coach and you say, well, Adam said 30 by one minute on one minute off. And your coach says, that's a little silly. Maybe we should, <laughs> you, you know, like, Take it all like together and, and just know that it's all a process. Know that if the coach is is doing stuff nested in science and, and probably with like some other like real people, they, they want to do what's best. Um, so just like trust the process and work with them, communicate what works, what doesn't, and just know that we're, we're all like in it to win it together. That's as I ramble on, that's, that's what I want. No, say. I mean, I, and, um, you know, I, you're one of the few people where I would, or if I can't take them, I would send them to you or a handful of other people. Cause you know, we all, we all are on this, like on this similar wavelength when it comes to you know, training and like caring for people and all that kind of stuff where, um, and you know, it's also like, we're not the cheapest coaches in the world, but we certainly have, I, I like to think we have the right, the right level of experience and the right set of priorities too. Because one of the things I like about conversations like this is that it's, it's, it's sort of rare, I think, to hear coaches like you and me talk to each other like we do. And while when we're not recording, there's a lot more cussing and there's a lot more names dropped and there's a lot more, oh my God, can you believe this? Or, oh, can you believe this person did this? Oh my God, watch out for them. Um, but, you know, when we, when we talk, it's, it's less about um, uh, uh, did you get enough MAPK to MPA, MPK activation on that workout? Um, that's not what we think about. Not at all. It, it's mm-hmm. useful occasionally to think, okay, well, maybe this is doing this. Maybe I can tweak this a little bit this way. But yeah, it's I, the basics. Yeah. In the base, and that's, I think, what a good coach does. However, I think it's important to know that your coach knows what some of these like protein signaling receptors and shit that's going on in your body and how training influences it. Right. But as a good coach, you're not really communicating. You, you take everything away, all the fluff 
you gum down to like what's applicable and you'd give that yeah. to the athlete. Meanwhile, it's super fun to like nerd out on like physiology stuff, but like it's so many people stress out about the wrong stuff. And that's when you find somebody who gets it and you can like crack a physiology joke and swear and laugh about it. And you understand like, that's, what's kind of fun. And I, and I would say that that's, what's, um, pretty unique about this situation. And I think other coaches too, I mean, there's, there's a lot of good ones out there. We, we like to rake people over the coals, but there's a lot of good, <laughs> all, all in good there. fun. Um, yeah, Mostly. all in good fun. Um, yeah. and actually one of the things that I think is really cool is when I talk to some of my clients, um, and especially some of them who are starting to coach other people or who, or, or who are coaches themselves and have been, um, I, I think this person is probably a great coach too, based on the questions they ask. Um, and that's one of the things that I actually miss about being a coached athlete is, is like having somebody who I can like really, really either, uh, learn from or bounce ideas off of or ask dumb questions to. Um, and so that's the kind of thing that I, I value so much. And I'm, I'm sure a lot of your clients are, are in the same vein where you think, man, this person's uh, probably a great coach right now or will be one day. Yeah. Um, I was just thinking about that the other day for, for some reason, like how terrible of a coach I was when I was younger and and you evolve and I, and I was just thinking about it too. It's like when you're trying to select a coach, I, I think it's important to, if it is a young coach that they're plugged into a system that is educating them and, and building them well as a coach. Yeah. Cause a young coach is not a bad thing. In fact, some of these younger bucks coming up, like in our, from CTS, we have a lot of younger ultra running coaches that have huge, like master's degrees in, in physiology and stuff. And I, and I've actually been jumping on, we have continued education calls, um, every week, one for ultra runners, one for cycling. And I've been jumping on the ultra running calls cause I'm learning a ton from mm, them. Yeah. And these are the young bucks coming through. Right. And I'm like, man, this is awesome. And, and somebody should not identified just because this person is young in age or young in years of coaching that they're bad necessarily. No, because they got their thumb on other, you know, some of the latest stuff that maybe we, you know, you and I don't, but yet the craft and kind of the art of coaching that we've been able to do over time. I mean, that, that does take years, but we can expedite and help them by teaching them some of this stuff. And that's where I think it's so cool when you start to share this. The last thing is like this field is so fucking young that it should move quickly. Meaning, I don't know, we were, we were testing VO2 max in like the 1920s. 20s, yeah. I don't know. Something like that. I don't know. Um, and so this field of science, it's rapidly moving and that's exciting. We have to rapidly move together, but not latch on to all this stupid, silly stuff that doesn't make sense. Um, and that's, I get excited every day to, to coach, um, to sift through the bullshit, deliver what works to my athletes. And it makes me smile. Yeah. So, uh, I think that's a good note to end on. So Adam, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having yeah. me, man. All right. So as usual, I want to thank Adam for coming onto the podcast again. Really enjoy talking to him. We've podcasted a couple times now and it's a blast every single time. And uh, like I said, I always learn something. I definitely learned a lot in this one and I hope everybody listening did too. And so if you'd like to get in touch with Adam and let him know your thoughts on uh, anything and everything, uh, well, maybe not everything, but <laughs> the stuff we talked about here, uh, I'll leave some information up on the show notes at empiricalcycling.com under the podcast episodes. 
And if you'd like to check out his podcast, it used to be the CTS Trainwright podcast, I believe has rebranded. It is now the Time Crunch Cyclist podcast. And that's the one that uh, Adam has. So uh, if you'd like to check that out and you liked what he was talking about today, go check that out, please. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, um, because I don't know what uh, Adam's availability is for coaching, uh, but I certainly am taking on professional clients right now, and we are all taking on uh, amateur clients uh, as well. So if you'd like to reach out to us, please shoot me an email, empiricalcycling at gmail.com. And if you'd like to follow us on Instagram and ask a question for a future episode or just ask me a question uh, on the weekend, you can uh, go follow me at empiricalcycling on Instagram. If you'd like to shoot us a donation, that really does keep the ship afloat. Thank you all for those as usual. And that's at empiricalcycling.com slash donate and if you'd like to get in touch for a consultation of course uh, you can do so because we will uh, you know, sit down we'll look at your files we'll talk about uh, you know, a race or a season or uh, pretty much anything that you'd like so our time's your time so empiricalcycling at gmail.com again so if you'd like to um, get in touch uh, that's where to do it and if you'd like to keep listening to the podcast episodes and you want to support us uh, sharing the podcast is great and fantastic and uh, really appreciate all of the listeners uh, over the years. So thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time.